Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Common Ground Podcast. Common Ground is a core class that meets weekly at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Our teacher, Lyric Fesco, is using this series to take a look at some of the parables of Christ. We hope you enjoy the podcast. If you want to know something about me uh, uh, that perhaps you don't already know, is that I am a person that does not like conflict. I do not like conflict. I, I think I'm a person who avoids conflict. As you grow older, part of growing up and maturing, and I'll even say this is part of the sanctifying process for the Christian, is the notion of facing the things that you're not comfortable with and dealing with them anyway. You know, this is part of, of what... Oh, I'm not there yet, am I? This is part of what sanctification is. We'll just leave it there. This is part of what sanctification is, okay? And you do the things you don't like to do because it's good for you. So I've learned to deal with the fact that I don't like conflict and to deal with conflict, I will if I must, but I don't like it. I don't like it. To give you an idea of my disdain for, for conflict I would, uh, or how I would avoid it, when I was finishing high school, uh, I decided that I wanted to take formal guitar lessons. So my mom, who, who knew someone from her work who taught guitar, uh, she made an introduction. I began taking lessons from uh, this guy. He was an interesting guy. Uh, he, uh, he was very smart. He was very good at guitar. He had an interesting way of teaching guitar, however, uh, that involved tuning the guitar to a non-standard tuning. And while this was, this was good for, for technique and such, uh, it was awful if I wanted to play any familiar song on the guitar. I, I, couldn't, uh, I couldn't just open up a book and play. I had to uh, figure something else out. That was very frustrating who was certain, uh, for someone who was certain that God was calling him to be a rock star. <laughs> very frustrating. How can I be a rock star if I can't play Smoke on the Water? on the guitar. I don't understand how this is, uh, this is going to you know, reconcile here. So, so I took lessons uh, from him for a while, but I reached a point where I decided I wanted to take lessons from someone who taught guitar with a standard tuning, someone that tuned the guitar like every other player uh, in the world. But the thought that I was, of, of me telling him that I was going to relieve him of his duties as a guitar teacher was mortifying. Okay, I hated the thought because what if he uh, argued back and then we wouldn't want that? What if he told me it was a foolish mistake I was making to back out now? I, I got these, these scenes of Daniel and Miyagi and, and, and I'm trying to, you know, like, you know, paint fence and this. You just don't understand right now. And if you, if you bail out right now, you're going to miss out and you won't be able to beat Cobra Kai. Uh, and what if that conflict led to more conflict? But, but having considered that, unless I wanted to just keep taking lessons from him, I was going to have to man up. All right, I was going to have to man up, so I did, and I wrote him a letter. <laughs> now, understand this. This was in the days before email, okay? I wasn't uh, uh, composing him an email or, or a text message I could hit send and, and feel fairly certain that it was arriving where it was supposed to go. Uh, it was a, a letter, and I was going to drop it in the mail. You, I, I don't know if maybe some of you don't know what this is. <laughs> It's the kind that a postal carrier picks up. You would put a stamp on it and you mail it and, and, uh, and someone, a person takes it to another person. And yes, I could have called him on the telephone, but the thought of speaking to him live was just too much for me. I couldn't, couldn't even take that, even, even over the phone. So I sent him a letter. Now, I took lessons from him on, my lessons were on a Saturday. I would go there on a Saturday. And so this was my plan. I would go there on Saturday. I would take my lesson from him. And then after that lesson, I would then drop the letter in the mail. So I knew it had a full week to get there, you know, accounting for any kind of delay or anything. I knew it would be plenty of time for him to, uh, for the letter to arrive. So after that lesson, I dropped the, the letter in the mail. And then uh, I thought, okay, uh, th that should be it. By the time he receives it, he'll know I'm not coming back, okay? Now, here's the thing. I dropped the letter in the mail, but then it was on Monday that he gave me a call. I thought, 
did it get there that quickly and now he wants to confront me about it? There's no way that's possible, right? Well, no, he was just calling to tell me, hey, listen, I have a conflict next Saturday. Can we meet an hour earlier? Knowing that I'd already dropped that letter in the mail, right? (laughs) Obviously he hadn't received it yet and I had already sent our breakup letter in the mail. I wasn't planning on being there at all next week, much less an hour late. So what did I say? I said, sure, an hour earlier is fine. That's, that's fine. And I never saw him again. <laughs> that's, that. that's how much I hate conflict. You know, that's it. And again, I, get, I wouldn't do that now, but that was my, in my uh, um, less mature uh, state. I, I, I dealt with conflict that way, very passively, okay? I hate conflict. And most of us, I would say, dislike conflict. Most of us, if we don't avoid certain topics, we certainly don't seek them out. And one of those topics that we don't run to to discuss is the topic of hell. Do we have any first-time visitors? <laughs> when we think about, uh, when we think about uh, uh, sharing our faith with other people, I dare say most of us wouldn't lead the discussion with, with hell. I think it paints a picture of the crazy evangelist who stands on the street corner proclaiming uh, uh, God's impending judgment. And that's not how we want to paint ourselves, right? Uh, we want to speak about the good things of our faith. We want to speak about the benefits of our faith. And, 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 and for the rough topics, we'd rather not discuss. We, we've got a letter here that we call the Bible that, well, they can read it, read it in there if they want to know uh, more about hell there. But, but here's the thing about this topic. We've got to take the good with the bad. You've got to take the good with the bad. We, we can't only talk about the good because uh, the good is only good with reference to the bad. The good is only good with reference to the bad. Tim Keller talks about it and compares it to our ecosystem. Okay, none of us like spiders and mosquitoes and all those creepy crawly things that, that, that make our, our skin crawl, right? So what would happen if we were just to somehow get rid of all those creepy crawly things? What would happen to our ecosystem? What would happen to our food chain if suddenly we got rid of all the, those things? It would have a negative effect, okay? And, and when you disrupt one part of the ecosystem, it necessarily has an impact on the whole, okay? So we, we can't avoid this topic. We can't avoid a topic that's in the Bible. All right. This topic is a top topic that uh, that Jesus spoke about. He spoke about this topic more than he spoke about heaven. Okay. And and if he talked about it, if he put it in his Bible, it, it, if it's in his ecosystem, it's 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 not something that we should or or even can avoid. We have to we have to we have to look at it. We have to look at it responsibly. Uh, this topic gives all the good topics, quote unquote, context. Okay, does that make sense so far? We can't avoid the one topic because it will have a detrimental effect on even the, the, the quote-unquote good topics. So let's look at this parable today. Uh, Woody, we're talking about hell this morning, okay? So he <laughs> didn't want to miss it, right? <laughs> let's, uh, let's look at this parable today that deals with this topic. And if you want, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19 and following. Turn there or follow along with me up here. We'll read the whole thing, and then we'll circle back around and discuss it. This is Luke 16, verse 19 and following. And it says this, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime... 
You in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Okay, so first things first, who are our characters in this parable? We have two main characters, uh, the rich man and Lazarus. There are many ways that these guys are dissimilar, but one, what is one of the more obvious and glaring descriptions about these guys that is dissimilar? Rich poor. Rich and poor. Certainly there are, there's rich and poor that distinguishes them, but is there anything else? What are their names? One of them doesn't have them. We have Lazarus and rich man. Okay, Lazarus and rich man, okay? Uh, believe it or not, the name given to Lazarus here, this is the only time in any of Jesus' parables where someone is given a name, where someone is given a proper name. In all the other parables, you have uh, either the Good Samaritan or the sower or the servant. Only Lazarus has been given a name, okay? And the name Lazarus means, does anyone know what the name Lazarus means? It means God helps. The name Lazarus means God helps, okay? So what can we learn from that? Uh, we have a rich man and a poor man. God, God helps the, the, the poor man and not the rich man. Therefore, we can conclude that poor people go to heaven, rich people go to hell. Is that right? Is that it? Please say no. <laughs> okay, yeah, I, I, that, you know you know that's not the central message of this parable. I don't believe Jesus is, is trying to teach that from uh, the rich man's lack of generosity, and that, that, that is the reason that he went to hell. Instead, what I think we can take from it is his lack of generosity wasn't the reason he was lost. It was a byproduct of him being lost, okay? It was an indicator about where his heart was. His attitude toward his wealth gave us an indicator about the condition of his heart, okay? Now, and on the other side of the coin, Lazarus didn't simply go to heaven because he was poor, okay? Lazarus didn't simply go to heaven because he was poor. God didn't look at him and say, oh, poor guy, let's give him a break. He's had a rough life. Let's let him in. No, that's not how it works either. But his poverty, his need, the fact that he had nothing material to trust in or even try to trust in, Okay, well, that's where God reveals himself to most of us. Okay, not in our abundance, but he reveals himself to us in our need, our desperation. This is when God shows up. Okay, so here his poverty was an indicator that all he had was God and nothing else. All right, so, so now, once again, like we've done in weeks past, think about context. Okay, now you have the characters here. You have this, this really desperately poor man, and then you have this really wealthy man, okay? And they're, they are now in, in, the, in, in heaven. Now think about, or not in heaven, but in the afterlife. Now think about where Jesus is, and think about who he's talking to. Think about who his audience is, okay? Let's just say that Jesus is, is talking to the, the Pharisees, which is probably not uncommon, or, 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 or actually he is talking to the Pharisees. They're among his audience uh, that he's, because he just got through telling them, you can't serve both God and money. Okay, he was just telling him this in, in chapters prior. You can't serve both God and money. You can't serve both God. And now I'm going to tell you a parable about a rich man who had all the influence, who had all the position, who had all the privilege, who had all the knowledge. So listen up. So see, it's not a stretch to connect the dots here. All right? He's saying, he's saying it without saying it. Pharisees, you are the rich man. 
You are the rich man. This is the brilliance of what he was, what he was teaching, how he taught, and, and the way he used these parables. He didn't always have to come out and say, all right, Pharisees, let's say you're a rich man. No, he, he, he was very subtle with it. You know? And so it almost came to the, the point where, where he was like, he can almost say something to the Pharisees without saying it to them. You know, which was always a volatile situation as he taught around these, uh, these, these Pharisees. He, he could tell them things without actually telling them. So, but in no uncertain terms here, looking back in retrospect, Pharisees, you are the rich man. You are the rich man, okay? You are the one with all the power. You're the one with all the influence. You have all the religious knowledge and authority. By all measures, you are a wealthy person, all right? And this is the one that's in hell. Okay, you think this got their attention. And the poor man, the one with none of the influence, none of the authority, and none of the knowledge, the one who is ostracized, who might this be? This is the sinner in his midst. This is the tax collector who's in his midst. This is the marginalized one who's in his midst, the pariahs of society. This is the one who's in heaven in this parable here. Now, you see, just this far, just this far into the parable, he's flipped every expectation and common understanding of the time. He's flipped it on its head. Okay, this is all somewhat unexpectedly backward. The Pharisees, these are the religious leaders, all right? They're the teachers, they're the experts on the law, and if anyone is going to heaven, it's got to be them, right? That, that's what it's about. That's the expectation. Of course you would think the Pharisees are going to heaven. They're the religious teachers. They're the ones, they're the experts on the, the, the law. Now, why, Jesus? Why, Jesus, are you putting this person in the context of hell? Okay? So that's the first thing that we can take away from, from this parable. This, this parable tells us something about our earthly position. What, what does this parable tell us about our earthly position as it relates to the afterlife? What does it tell us? What does it gain us? Nothing. Nothing. What, is your, what does your earthly standing gain you in, in the afterlife? Yeah, I, was, I wonder, too, if you use that context because you see another stories of how in the Jewish understanding that wealth was a picture or was a reflection of God's blessing. Mm-hmm. Which, again, is not unlike the way we live today, too. I, I remember I told you a story some time ago that I saw this fabulously awesome-looking uh, Mercedes SUV driving down the road on the freeway, and they had a sticker on the back that said, We are so blessed. I'm like, ah, oh, so happy for you. That's so great. <laughs> she got a fabulous Mercedes like that, and you put the sticker on there. We are so blessed. And if that's one of your cars, I'm sorry, all right? <laughs> But again, it's that, it's that thing, that, that uh, earthly blessing, it does, not, it does not give us any indicator one way or the other as to our, our position in heaven, okay? If you're fabulously wealthy here, that doesn't mean somehow that God is like, well, he's done extra good, so here's a little extra wealth. That's not how he works. Same by the same manner. This is what he's also setting up here. For someone who is destitute, for someone who's desperately poor, that does not give us any indicator as to what God's favor is upon him here on this earth too, because he's, he's the one in heaven. So he's telling us right now, erase all your understanding, erase all your expectation, erase all your, your knowledge that tells you that physical wealth or lack thereof is somehow an indicator of God's blessing. Erase all that. That's what he set up for us. Any questions so far on that much so far? He's just set the stage for us and told you, erase your understanding of what you know about the physical wealth and, or lack thereof. Okay, so what's the next thing that Jesus is teaching us in this parable? For those of you that have children, or for those of you who were ever punished as a child, uh, what is it we were trying to do, or what is it your parents were trying to do when they sent you away to your room? What, what do you think the objective was there when they told you, oh, now you've done it, go to your room. What is the objective in that moment? To wait for the spanking. <laughs> <laughs> to wait for the spanking. In a sense, I remember it, they would tell you, go to your room and think about it. Yeah. You think about what you've done, and, uh, and wait for the spanking, right? <laughs> right? 
Uh, anyone else? What are we trying to accomplish when we send, t tell our kids, you go to your room? You go to your room. Change their behavior. To change their behavior. Allowing more time for them to think about the, the consequences of what they've done, and therefore maybe that will cause them to come back with a different mindset, a different set of behavior guidelines, okay? Yes, there's a certain component here where we want our kids to go do that and think about what they've done. Go, go by yourself and think about what is even, maybe you'll come back and come to your senses. But there's also something else going on here that's a little bit more profound, whether you understand this or not. When we create, when we do that, we, we are creating separation. We're creating separation. When we separate our child from the larger family, what, what is happening in that moment? What is happening? This is a reflection of what biblical church discipline looks like in Matthew 18. Okay? After you've confronted your brother privately, you sinned against you. If that has no effect on them, then you go with him with someone else. And if that has no effect on them, then you, then you take them before the church. And if that has no effect on them, what do you do? You separate them. You cast them out. At that point, it's separation. Why do we create separation in that moment? Is it just a punishment? You go think about what you've done. Is that what we're telling someone in that context? This is what we're saying in that moment. This is what you're saying to your child in this moment, too, when you send them to, to be by themselves. Here is what life looks like living outside of the community, li living outside of the community of grace, mercy, love, and justice. Here's what life looks like without those things. Here's what life looks like when you're isolated, okay? Again, whether you know you're doing that or not to your child, this is what it looks like with, with church discipline as it reflected in Matthew 18. When we get to the point that we're separating someone from the larger community of God's grace, mercy, love, and justice, we're saying, go try that. Go try that by yourself. Go see what that's like. Go see what that's like. And what we're doing is now we're, we're, we're trying to create a thirst and a hunger for what they had, for what they're missing, for the, for the grace, the community of grace that they were in before. Okay? This is another thing that we learned about in this parable. Hell is a place of separation. Hell is a place of separation. And, and what is it? you are separated from, you're separated from His grace, from His mercy, from His love, from His justice, and anything else that's good, this is what you're separated from. So, so far we have this, this unnamed rich man and a poor name, man named Lazarus. They both dine upon their deaths. Lazarus is carried away to heaven by the angels, and the rich man, it simply tells us in verse 22, also died and was buried. Okay? Then look at verse 23. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham. Where? Where was he? far off, far off, and Lazarus at his side. Not close off, but far off. Separation. Then in verse 26, we're told, and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. That's what hell is. It's separation. A lot of people, when they think of hell, immediately think of God making a kind of dungeon and red-hot fires around or something like that. But hell is simply separation from all the goodness of God. It's separation from all the goodness of God. You see, sin, sin by definition, is you essentially saying to God, leave me alone. That's what sin is. That's what all sin is. All sin is, by definition, you saying to God, leave me alone. Leave me alone. Think about it. Sin is nothing more than you telling God, leave me alone. I want to do what I want to do, not what you want me to do, so leave me alone. Okay? So if sin is saying, leave me alone, hell is God saying, okay. Okay. Okay, that's all God is doing in, that, in, in this moment here. He's saying, okay. Okay, separation. It's what the lost people spend their whole life trying to do, trying to get away from God and, and jump over that chasm and get away from God. In hell, they've gotten their way and they're, and they're finally separated. 
they're finally separated. Now maybe, maybe again, you've done this as a, as a parent, you know, your kid is, is, is tugging and tugging and yanking on your arms and yanking and yanking. Have, have you ever let them go and just let them fall down? I've done that. <laughs> I've done it. I've let them go. I let them go and fall. Now, some of you might be thinking, that's really mean, but I have good intention. I did it to one day explain to them what hell is. That's what I was doing. <laughs> Not yet, one day. <laughs> hell is you tugging and tugging and, t- and God finally gives your way to your tugging. Okay, have at it. Do what you want to do. At some point in your life, you have to say, God, thy will be done. I am not my own. And if you never say that, then Jesus finally tells you, okay, thy will be done. Thy will. You've been trying to separate yourself from me. Now now go and be separated. Okay? You see, God makes an offer to us that essentially says, rely on me. Rely on my work. And I'll give you my righteousness. And it's our natural tendency to still try and run, to, to go tell God, no, leave me alone leave me alone. But in spite of, of, of all our pushing away, we're told in James 1.17 this, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Now, what that means is that if a person says, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in God, if that person is loving, unselfish, and wise, and all these other great things, whether they acknowledge it or not, they are not completely separated from God on this side of, of, of eternity. They're not completely separated from God. Every good gift from, comes from above. So even a non-believer can see things like wisdom and, and express love and do all these great things, okay? So nobody in this life is actually totally separated from God. Nobody actually gets over that chasm because if you actually got away from God, spiritually speaking, you wouldn't be able to love, okay? You wouldn't be able to have any joy or wisdom. You'd lose all your humility and your perspective. You'd be absolutely absorbed in self-centeredness, and therefore you'd lose all your ability to give love and receive it. And then what are you left with? If you are uh, in that state, if you are removed from all that, you're left with that's what hell is, okay? You'd be completely separated from God's goodness, and that condition is hell. Hell is the absence. Hell is the absence of God's goodness. There's a sense we can say that you're not fully separated from God in hell even. In fact, we also might say that hell is, is being in God's presence, but without his protection, without the protection of Christ. It's the absence of God's goodness, okay? So far, so good. Any questions on that much so far? That's a lot to take in, I know. But if you think about hell as separation, as separation, willful separation, it starts to, to, to make a little bit more sense. Any questions so far? Is part of hell... The people who are in hell can see the people who are in hell. Well, I don't know that we would take that away from this parable. I mean, uh, I think there is a certain awareness. Again, hell is separation. I think it's separation from God's goodness. So there's a sense that uh, you maybe have this understanding of, of, of what you're missing. But I don't know that there's any... I don't know that this, this, this parable is trying to teach us that, that the people in hell have a view of everything that's going on in heaven. I, I think that's probably not, again, with the parables, you want to look for the central point and not necessarily try and, uh, and attach meaning to, for instance, allegory. If we're reading John Bunyan's uh, uh, Pilgrim's Progress, every single detail in, in allegory in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress is, is pointing us to something, every detail, whereas a parable, it's usually consolidated around a central truth. And so that's probably why I wouldn't say, Ah, therefore, because it says in this parable, now uh, that means that people in hell have a view to the people in heaven. Don't, don't know that for sure, but I don't think that's what's being taught here. That's how I would answer that. Anyone else? Yes. Um, I, I, I don't know where I learned this, but um, this parable is not called Abraham's side. Mm-hmm. That's like pre-crucifixion. Mm-hmm. So wasn't there like a Jewish belief that like there were kind of, kind of not like a like an intermediate state mm-hmm. almost, and then when Christ died, that's when, 
you know, the people before Christ that were, I guess, Israelites went to be with Yes. God, and then mm-hmm. it was like an intermediate state, which is hell, but then... Abraham's bosom, it was called. Yes. Great question, and uh, and what I'm going to do because it, that is a, it's a complicated question because uh, yes, that is a fairly common belief that there are even souls waiting in hell, to, waiting to be released, and, and 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 Jesus would go down to hell and preach the gospel, and there's a common understanding, and it's even exacerbated that thought is exa- in, in the Apostles' Creed where it says Jesus descended into hell. Now we just got through studying the Apostles' Creed about oh a few months ago, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to refer you after this class to a couple of lectures where we really struggled through that. We struggled through it trying to understand and that's a tough topic and and hopefully that'll help because it, it is a question that deserves a lot of attention and uh, you can listen to the lectures that we had in that that hopefully that will answer that and if not I'll even give you my email address and you can answer any other further questions on that and anyone else who wants that can have that too okay uh, just uh, you know as I guess what I have I have business cards now <laughs> I will give you one of those, and you can reach out, and I will give you a reference on, on where those lectures are, and, uh, and, uh, and we'll cover that. But to answer your question briefly, we, uh, we as a uh, Reformed Westminster Confessing Church, we, we don't believe that Jesus, after he died on the cross, then went down into hell to, to free the, the trapped souls that were down in hell. We believe once he said it is finished, his hell was on the cross. When his separation was on the cross from God, that's where it ended. There are some, some uh, complicated verses in the Bible that would say, hey, well, what about this one? It seems to indicate, and that's what we go through in those lectures that, that talk about those, those specific verses that, that uh, are, are problematic. So hopefully that'll help. Mm-hmm. All right, any other questions before we continue on? Yes, ma'am. Sorry, my question. Uh, I heard sometime in the past year, mm-hmm. and, I, and I didn't, you know, even though we know that, that and we you know, believe that there's heaven and hell, I never, you know, I hear people say all the time, oh, you know, I don't believe any of this stuff. I believe that when you die, you just die. Mm-hmm. Well, but they just just made it so clear. They said, you know, every every person that is ever born is a soul, mm-hmm. and those souls never die. Whether you believe or whether you don't believe, and so it made it so much more clear. One other way to talk to someone when they're, you know, de- denying this. Mm-hmm. Say, hey, you know what? Your spirit will go on, even though you don't believe it'll go on. Right. Yeah, no, like like it or not. Yeah, yeah we we are eternal beings. That's uh, that's for certain. Let me, uh, let's, let's uh, see, i got about eight minutes here. Let's see if we can't land the plane. You know what I find fascinating? This is something I find fascinating. I find stories uh, that uh, are either about people uh, winning the lottery or uh, athletes and celebrities coming into a large sum of money suddenly and, and how often uh, those who come into fame and fortune and, and, and they quickly can lose it all, so, so quickly. Um, for instance, I, th- I think about uh, uh, heroes of mine like uh, uh, MC Hammer. Do you remember him? <laughs> Can't touch this? Do, 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 do. At his high point, he was making millions and millions. In one year alone, in 1991, he made over $33 million in that year alone. $33 million in just one year. By 1996, he was filing for bankruptcy in 1996. That's just five years removed. I don't think I'm outing him here. It's a very public story, okay? Uh, that's just five years removed from making 30. He's talked about it, you know, extensively here. Uh, five years removed from making that much uh, money in a single year. So how does that happen? How do, you, how do you burn through that kind of money and burn through it so fast? Here's what's common in a lot of those stories. They are people who have gone most of their lives with limits, Okay with constraints, with people providing them boundaries of some kind, okay? Then suddenly the boundaries are removed 
Okay, and then what happens when those boundaries are removed? They fall apart. They fall apart. Even though they're given everything that they want, even though they're given everything they've ever asked for, they're given no bound, everything's off limits. And what happens? So you, sometimes you see it physically manifest on people's faces that they get so wrapped up in, in getting whatever it is they want, they, they get into drugs and, and it has this physical toll on their body and their face, and they literally disintegrate. They come undone, they fall apart. Um, so remember our example of what, what God does with ones who tug and tug and tug and finally he lets them go. He, he removes the boundaries and what happens? They disintegrate, okay? We see evidence of this in this parable about hell too. Look at this is in verse 24. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. What happens when you feel loved? What happens when you feel love? You feel, you feel integration, right? You feel connected. Conversely, what happens if you give into a bitter thought? What happens? When you give into a bitter thought about someone else, do you feel connected to that person? Or do you feel disconnected from that person? Do you feel integrated with that person? Or do you feel disintegrated with that person, right? Further, what happens when you give into bitterness and just let it fester? What, what happens to you physically? Bitterness can take a physical toll on your body too, just being bitter, right? The more you move towards bitterness, the more your body can actually disintegrate, okay? I'm saying disintegrate, but think about the construction of that word. Not integrate, but disintegrate, okay? Uh, and it's not just bitterness. Given to any sin, given to pride more and more, and you'll see yourself go to pieces. And in hell, it's the same thing. It just goes on forever. Okay, we can see glimpses of it here now on earth and in hell it's no longer restrained, it's let loose, it's unfiltered and unrestrained. And, and the point is illustrated no more perfectly here than in verse 24. When the rich man asks Abraham to have Lazarus go fetch him some water, he's completely deceived. Look what's happening, this is verse 27, and he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Do you see what he's saying here? He's not saying, boy, I really messed up here. I really messed up. I should have done things differently. Now, if only I could tell my brothers the same thing so that they could repent. This is not an apology. This is not an apology. There's no apology or repentance here. Don't think for a minute that's what's happening because that's not what he's saying. What's he saying? He's effectively saying, it's not my fault. That's what he's saying here. It's not my fault. Do you, do you know what drives me crazy as a parent is the utter refusal in many cases whereby one child will not apologize to another child for, for even the fact that they know they've done something wrong. They say, I, it's, I didn't do it. And it's not my fault. I didn't do it. It's so hard for them to recognize that fact. Oh, you know what? I messed up here. I should apologize. That's just not something that comes naturally to them. In their sinful nature, they're not inclined to do that. Guess what? It's not much different for adults. Okay? Here's, here's what it looks like in an exploded view in hell in the garden. What happened? Adam, what did you do? It was the woman you gave me. Eve, what do you have to say for yourself? It was that crazy serpent that you have going around here. Have you ever noticed how we're inclined to do this? It doesn't seem to be natural to us in our sinful state to be the first to apologize. Look again. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send them to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. He's really telling Abraham, I, I, I didn't get a fair shake here. Okay? I have five brothers, and they need to get enough information. If I had got enough information, I may have done differently. But I, I didn't get all the facts. I didn't get all the facts. You see what he's doing? He's blaming God. He's blaming God. Is he not asking for forgiveness here? 
He asks for comfort. He's still ordering Lazarus around. He has no idea where he is exactly. He has an utter lack of self-knowledge. He's so internally focused that he has no awareness of the greater picture. This is what disintegration is. And here we're seeing an unfiltered view of that. You see what this means? What is hell? Okay. It's not a God who is standing on the lid of hell refusing to let people out. Okay. You, you might even say that, that it's a place that doesn't need a lid or a gate because everyone who's in there is in there willingly and through no fault, quote unquote, of their own. Uh, let's look at one more thing here uh, that we have to notice before we close. Uh, I got a couple minutes and that's what's being said starting in verse 29. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. Then if someone goes to them from the dead, that's curious language, isn't it? I mean, because, I mean, do we know of a central story in the Bible about someone coming from the dead? That's familiar, right? Abraham basically tells them, no, they won't listen, even if someone rises from the dead. Why? Because they're so self-deceived, they're so, self, they're so separated and, and disintegrated. They've collapsed in on top of themselves that even someone who rises from the dead will have no effect on them. Who's Jesus talking about here? Easiest Sunday school answer of all time? <laughs> Jesus. He's talking about himself. And, and what he's saying there is, you'll never understand my work of dying and rising unless you first understand all of this. You won't understand the whole ecosystem until you have a firm understanding on the impact of the creepy crawly things, the things you don't like, the things you aren't comfortable with. You won't have an understanding of what my work is all about until you have a firm understanding of what hell is, what your sin is, what your depravity is. In other words, you won't have a full appreciation of salvation, of being saved, until you understand what you're being saved from. So circling back to Jesus' original audience, what was their understanding of what was good? For the Pharisees, it was their righteousness. Uh, what they could earn, and somehow that brought them right standing before God. And Jesus is saying here, no. Your understanding of what brings about right standing before God is at best misguided, and at worst leaving, leading you to a place like this. The only way you can become integrated, the only way you can avoid separation, the only way you can avoid self-deception is look outside of yourself and your position, your, your, your ability. Anything else leaves you like the rich man. On the other hand, when you come to God with nothing, when you come to God with only need, okay, then you're in a position to be in right standing with God because it's only in your need and your recognition of that need that allows you to open yourself to the one who has come back from the dead to fulfill everything, every need, to fulfill every need that you have, okay? Any thoughts or, or other questions or comments we want to close with? Yeah. One other thought question. Wasn't this story told before he, rose, he raised Lazarus? Yes. So mm -hmm. To me, another just incredible picture of his mercy. Mm -hmm. Trying kind of to, to put it out there. They're going to recognize, they're going to remember that, what happens. Mm -hmm. It's even before he then goes to the cross. Anyway, I just, mm -hmm. it's amazing to think about. Yeah, yeah, the, uh, the, the timing and, and the way that he, you know, I know sometimes the, the Gospels aren't written in exactly chronological order, but it certainly happened before that, you know, just because it was early on in his ministry and, and Lazarus, the raising of that happened near the end of the ministry. So, but just as the way he articulates this and the way that that unfolds, it's like, that's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Someone else? Thoughts? Questions? Yes. In our Henry Allen book, he says, when we encounter aloneness, 
we can either go towards loneliness, which is a people solution, or we can go to solitude. And I think the greatest human terror is completely being alone. I think you're right. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. And uh, again, that's one of the reasons that we, we emphasize community here. It's not just because, oh, we, we don't want to be alone, but they're in community, in Christ-centered community. What, we're, we're, what you're getting is, I think Scott even made mention of it too, the, the Jesus with, with skin or, or the hands and feet of Jesus is, is, is what you get in the body of Christ when you're here. And, and that's what, again, integration looks like, integration with Christ. And in hell, it's the opposite of that. It's becoming disintegrated uh, with that. And, uh, and again, so if you're not a part of a community, uh, be it this one or another smaller one within this body of believers, you know, talk to me. I've got business cards and I can help you out. There. <laughs> so. Someone else? Yes. Um, Ms. Marie. I was thinking about the uh, thing for each of the people in this uh, parable. One thing that uh, was coming across with a beggar was how humble he was. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know about you, but if I'm dreaming about somebody who I think is in a more prosperous position than me, I'm not dreaming for the crumbs that they have. I'm dreaming for like all that they have. Yeah. There's just the fact that he's even dreaming for just the crumbs that fall from his face. Right. Which shows mm-hmm. how humble he was. Um, but then, um, and I've heard like uh, this interpretation of, for the rich man um, uh, quite a bit in terms of how he doesn't ask to get out or he doesn't seem like he has um, any remorse or anything of that nature. But when I read it, I don't read it like that mm-hmm. because I read like he himself identifies. It has torment, anguish. Um, uh, Abraham says anguish, and, mm-hmm. and, and he says, "Like spare my brothers from this torment." So I feel like it feels like to me that 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 he understands his position, mm-hmm. um, and it is miserable for him. Yep, and he's it is like desperate for somebody, mm-hmm. like for his people who he care about cares about not to be in the same mm-hmm. position as him. Yep. I don't know why he's not specifically asking to get out of that position. I mean, maybe if after judgment you've seen God. Maybe it's kind of like Isaiah, where like the best things about you are like wretched to you now because mm-hmm. now you understand it better. Um, so it. You, you make a very good point, and I, and, and I, and I, I think you're right, but cause, because think about how we are in our sinful nature and our sinful tendencies. Sometimes when we, are, when we know we are in the midst of sin, you know, and I'm speaking from personal experience here, when I know I'm in the midst of sin and I'm in anguish and I'm, in, uh, in, uh, I'm torturing myself, Yet, what do I do? Do I run from my sin? A lot of the time, I don't. For whatever it is, I still nurture it. I still, I still don't, don't free, even though I'm in the midst of torment. And I think that's a reflection of what's happening here. I, I, I do believe Lazarus, or not Lazarus, the rich man believes he's, he's in torment. I do believe he's in anguish. But again, this is, this is what a picture of hell is. It's being in the midst of that torment and not acknowledging the fact that I've got to divest myself of this this, uh, this tendency that I have, and I, and, I, and, I, and I don't want to. I want to nurture it instead. And I think that's, that's the picture that we're seeing here. It's even though he knows he's in torment, he still wants to, to, to not acknowledge the fact and just, just nurture it. That's what we do. That's what we do. That's what I do in my sinful state. Anyone else? Sure. Mm-hmm. Katie. I keep thinking of um, addiction and the way that it separates us from God, and that's the step one of every 12-step program is to admit that we're powerless. Mm-hmm over our sin, and then step two is to, you know, ask God to remove it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I've, I've known so many people that are in the midst of addiction that hate the fact that they're in the midst of addiction, and they can't let it go. You know, that, that's, a, that's a picture of... Mm-hmm. I wanted to give Rosemary, like, like, reinforce what you said about the kids and the shifting blade. Yesterday we were in Houston, it was like 900 degrees, and 
Gatorades. <laughs> my kids asked me to go get them a Gatorade, so I got them a yellow one and a red one. And guess what? Which one they chose to drink in their white Oxford shirts and ties? <laughs> the red one. Uh -huh. Jack, my nine-year-old, goes, oh, "Mama, of course you had to get us the red Gatorade, <laughs> and now it's on my shirt." Your fault. <laughs> no, not he didn't blame himself for spilling the red Gatorade yeah. on his nice clothes. It's your fault. <laughs> Yeah. Getting him the refreshing yeah. Red yeah. Red, which happens to be your favorite. So it's kind of. <laughs> That's a great example. We know what we did was wrong. Yeah. But we don't acknowledge it and mm -hmm. instead we mm -hmm. blame the good of the fuck. Yeah. That's a great example. Because I, I know my, I've seen my kids do that before. They somehow put the blame on us for something that they've. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's, uh, let's put a cap on it there. And uh, if you have any th further thoughts, comments, or questions, please come talk to me. I'm happy to to help you wrestle through anything uh, that you may be struggling with, whether it pertains to this lesson or something else, okay? Who'd like to close us in prayer? You can do that for us. Thank you all so much for listening, and we hope you tune in next week. If you have any questions, please feel free to leave a comment for us. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review and subscribe. Have a great week.